It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week, can IBM turn around? It's a very big company. They, they, they do a lot of research. They have the reserves to, to, to power through this. The question is how long it will last. And a rare glimpse inside Aldi's headquarters. I think I'm only the second journalist, certainly foreign journalist, to have made the trip to Essen to see them. But first, President Donald Trump called the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, the worst agreement ever and has threatened to pull out. But after tense talks this week, negotiators have agreed to allow more time to try to salvage it. America wants drastic revisions. Mexico and Canada are resisting. And businesses in all three countries are fearful the deal might collapse. Take Mexicans. Luis Santana, who makes cowboy shirts in Jalisco, Mexico, is worried that if NAFTA breaks down, the US will impose higher tariffs on textiles. It will affect us because our um, main market is the US. We ship about 60% of the, our production to the US, a little, uh, some part to Canada. But yeah, if, if, if they are going to put some taxes or some regulations to the, to the clothes or to the apparel industry, of course it will affect us in a really big way. So what now for this 23-year-old trade agreement? I'm joined by Samaya Keynes, our economics correspondent, who's been following this closely. Samaya, I mentioned drastic revisions. Can you outline them for us? So there are some differences between the negotiators that are pretty pretty large, but within the realms of normality of, of previous trade agreements. So the Americans want to change the dispute settlement provisions in the original deal. Um, they want to change the access for Canadian companies in their public procurement markets. There are some proposals that are much, much more drastic. So the main one that everyone's talking about is uh, the rules for the amount of North American and American content that has to be in a car for it to pass between the countries tariff-free. At the moment, there's 62.5% regional content, and the American proposal um, is for that to rise to 85% for North American content and to have an American-specific content requirement of 50%. Those are eye-wateringly tight requirements. Uh, that's, that's higher regional content than, than many cars um, already have. The, the timetable that they're proposing is very, very tight for the, for the change. Essentially, American businesses, Mexican businesses and Canadian businesses have all reacted with horror at these proposals. The second proposal that is really kind of very, very unusual is this idea of a five-year expiry date on the deal. So unless all three members of the deal agreed, essentially this deal would expire after five years. That 
just isn't how deals are done, right? The, the point of a trade deal is that it provides certainty for businesses. If you have an expiry date, then as a company thinking about creating a cross-border supply chain that's reliant on the deal, why, why would you do that? And actually, there's a lot of research showing that um, the uncertainty-reducing effects of trade deals, actually, they account for a very, very big chunk of the trade-boosting effects of these deals. So it's not clear that the Mexicans and the Canadians would accept such a clause Effectively, what you're doing is every five years, you're inserting a massive amount of politics into this economic relationship. Yet Mexico and Canada have agreed to more talks. Is that because there's a belief on all sides that these gaps really are bridgeable? Or are they just condemning NAFTA to a a slow and agonising death? The language after the latest press conference in the joint statement called upon negotiators to explore creative ways to bridge these gaps between the parties. I think... Essentially, what's happened is that everyone needs a bit of time to cool off. They've had four rounds very, very quickly. From all accounts, it sounds like the atmosphere has been very, very tense, in some cases almost toxic. So I think what they're trying to do is is, is give some space, let people go home and think. And I think what the Canadians and the Mexicans are hoping is that the American negotiators will have some time and perhaps they'll listen to the American businesses and politicians who are just as horrified by some of these proposals uh, as the Canadians and the Mexicans. And maybe, maybe that extra time will mean that they'll listen and, and change some of these demands. But this is now going to drag on into next year. This is presumably going to be extraordinarily frustrating for Donald Trump, for whom this was a campaign pledge, something he thought he could do quickly. Definitely. No one wants him to withdraw. And the you know the worry is that if, if it takes too long, then he'll get impatient and withdraw. I think the... The actual time constraint, though, is the Mexican election season, which starts at the beginning of next year. Essentially, negotiators really, really want to avoid this deal going through and becoming a toxic political issue in Mexico, which it already slightly is. But they they really want to avoid that election season, um, which means that they still really do need to agree something by the beginning of the next year, or else they have to wait for a really, really long time uh, until the next Mexican government comes in. And then they hit all sorts of other American political deadlines. There's huge pressure for this thing to be done quickly. Samir Keynes, economics correspondent, thank you very much. Thank you. And what about you? Does NAFTA affect you? We'd love to hear your stories. Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radioeconomist.com. Next, in this week's edition of The Economist, Ludwig Ziegler, our technology editor, writes that technology giants can be like dinosaurs. Most don't adapt successfully to a new age. One exception to this rule had been IBM. Over a century old, it had been through a number of transformations. Recently, though, doubts have been growing about whether IBM can keep up, in particular with the changes in the cloud and the rise of artificial intelligence. Revenues had fallen for 21 successive quarters. Well, its latest results came out just this week, and Ludwig joins me now to talk about them. Ludwig, were they as gloomy as the previous 21 quarters? No, actually, they weren't, and that that was the good news. So, as as you rightly said, kind of IBM had posted uh, 21 consecutive quarters of of declining revenue, and so everybody was expecting that that to continue, and in, in some ways it did. So, so IBM didn't grow, but it, it, it the revenues declined to much less than people expected, and they all also indicated that in the next quarter, actually, the growth growth may may return. So people saw that as a positive sign, and 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 shares went up five percent after the results were released. It remains to be seen whether that really kind of marks the turnaround for IBM. 
Indeed, that's what was going to be my next question. I mean, how confident are analysts that this might be a turnaround, or is it just a blip in a, a long secular decline? That that remains to be seen. I mean, it, it is clear that some of IBM's big initiatives, and you, you mentioned the cloud, and, and they're building out there their the cloud services and, and, and data centers, and, and even their AI portfolio, which which they call Watson, is taking off. But it's it's not clear how fast. I mean, IBM is is as many or as most big uh, uh, old incumbent IT firms in the situation where kind of the, the the old business kind of selling computers to companies, and so so they they build their data centers in, in in their basements. That that that's coming to an end, and and, and more and more of the workloads are moving into the cloud so so you so so your old business is, is kind of shrinking and then at the same time these companies have to uh, uh, grow the new business so artificial intelligence is, is kind of the 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 next big shift or the, the parallel big shift uh, next to the cloud and all the big IT companies are trying to to get into that game and actually IBM was was one of the first or the first that made a big bet on AI uh, but it has not been uh, very successful so far Indeed, I was going to ask you, how, how is Watson doing? I mean, some of us have lost track of it since it won Jeopardy on the American TV quiz show. So this was the first uh, uh, computer system that, that was intelligent enough to, to beat humans in that, that game. Uh, but IBM has since kind of expanded what Watson, the name, the label, the brand covers, and, and it's now a collection of, of uh, a lot of uh, AI technologies. Now, uh, IBM has, has made a Big deal of, of, of Watson kind of marketed and, 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 and that were advertising. I think even the Super Bowl, they ran ads uh, for Watson. But it has uh, disappointed or is not kind of uh, the, the business doesn't seem to grow as quickly as, as IBM has, had hoped. And the, the reason for that is basically it's just hard. Uh, uh, the type of AI, and there are many different types of AI uh, IBM is, is trying to do, is, is, or at least originally was trying to do, is, is basically partner with, with companies and, 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 and use their data to, to, to sift, through it, uh, sift through them and uh, come up with new types of services. I mean, the, 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 the most prominent example is kind of they, they partnered with several hospitals and, and, and the idea was to use patient data and, 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 and mine the patient data and uh, use that to come up with predictions about whether a patient would be sick or what type of treatment is, is appropriate now. And that's proven much, much more difficult than, uh, than anticipated partially or, or mainly because of the quality of the data, which is so, so it has to be cleansed and, 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 and scrubbed and, and, and all those things before it can really be fed into algorithms. We seem to be talking IBM down a bit, but it's still a company with 390,000 employees with $19 billion in revenues. Uh, how, how does it continue to be so successful might be the other way of putting it. I mean, and people, of course, have in mind, uh, or some at least, uh, who are old enough uh, to remember that in, in the 90s, IBM almost went belly up uh, after their, their kind of their then uh, main business, the, the, the mainframe, uh, collapsed uh, rather rapidly. But I mean, IBM is nowhere near that, that situation at this point. Uh, it, as you say, it's still a very big company, 390,000 employees, more than half of those, by the way, in India. It's a very big company. They, they, they do a lot of research. They have the reserves to, to, to power through this. The question is how long it will last. Will Ginny Rometty, the CEO, uh, get the time to to uh, navigate this turnaround, and also the question is whether these new businesses, AI, cloud, and and all that, will be as profitable as the old ones, and that that's still to be seen. Ludwig Siegler, technology editor, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Evan. And finally, 
Aldi, the German discount supermarket, has become one of the biggest retail groups in the world and has embarked on a big expansion drive in America. Yet it started as a simple suburban grocery in the post-war wreckage of Essen in Germany's industrial northwest. Its state founders, two brothers, Theo and Karl Albrecht, were notoriously reclusive, and that culture of secrecy persists, so access to Aldi is rare. But our Britain business editor, Richard Cockett, secured a visit to the headquarters in Germany of Aldi Nord, one of the firm's two branches. Richard joins me now. Hello, Richard. Hello, Simon. So, so how did you manage this scoop, this rare access? Well, I write about them um, quite a lot because they're so big in, in Britain and we've all been watching their relentless rise about over the past five years. And you go through this normal routine of you talk to lots of analysts, etc. Uh, and you know Aldi and Little never speak to the press, but nonetheless you go through the kind of routine of phoning up the head office and they say, oh, no, we can't speak to the press. But on this occasion, I went through the routine, and somebody said, oh, you must speak to our spokesperson in Germany. So I spoke to a very nice person called Florian, who is the new head of corporate communications there, and he invited me over to Essen. And my trip, I, I think I'm only the second journalist, certainly foreign journalist, to have made the trip to Essen to see them, and uh, it's part of a kind of symptomatic of a wider change in Aldi, uh, where they are embarking on a big uh, expansion plans around the world. And as part of this, they're coming, it's like a sort of secret service coming in from the cold. Um, so they're now having to deal with more stakeholders, and they're spending a bit of money too. They're building a new campus. It's sort of Google without the basketball hoops. And what did you find on your visit? Was what you saw a picture of austerity, as one would expect from, from a firm that's so notoriously frugal? No, they're spending a bit of money now. Um, they're, they're spending 5.2 billion euros on revamping uh, and expanding all their stores in Europe. And separately, Aldi Suda doing, have similar ambitions in Britain and also America, where they want to build 900 new stores um, over the next five years. And the idea now is that they used to cater really to the working class and the poor. They did very well in the industrial Ruhr and, for instance, in the north of England. But that market is kind of saturated now. So they've to expand, they're now chasing middle-class customers, more affluent customers. So uh, to do that, they're changing. The stores are getting bigger, brighter, nicer. They're having fresh veg, um, French wine and cheese, all these um, unheard-of goodies from an Aldi store. One of the hallmarks of an Aldi, I guess, has been that it has stocked relatively few items, a very small number of items compared with other supermarkets. Is that changing or is it just stocking different items? It's evolving. Um, there are, Aldi is a pains to point out that, say, it's in its new German stores, they're still going to have just 1,400 products. Um, by contrast, an average big supermarket from the, some of the rivals, or say in Britain, would stock about 40,000, 55,000 products. So they're still keeping that vast difference in the product range. Um, for uh, simplicity. Simplicity, simplicity is, is, is the byword for Aldi, which means it's very easy to navigate, very quick to get in and out of the store. But in Britain, where they're particularly taking on 
posh arrivals such as Tesco's and Sainsbury's, they are adding to the product line, so they may go up to about 2,000 SKUs. Some people think this is Aldi selling out, you know, the beginning of the end, tampering with the formula, but they would argue that this is a necessary adjustment to, um, to continue expanding in Britain to bring in new, more discerning customers. And at the moment, it seems to be working for today, uh, the Cantor Worldwide panel, which is a retail analyst, published its new statistics on market share, and Aldi and Lidl are still expanding in Britain. So eventually we're all going to be shopping at Aldi and Lidl. Their model seems to work better than the other supermarkets. It seems, and Aldi threatened me with the uh, thought that 50% of people in Britain have never yet set foot inside an Aldi store. <laughs> So um, they think there's still plenty of shoppers out there to attract. I mean, who, we, it's interesting, who knows when this will end? Some people reckon they could end up with 20% of market share in Britain, um, Aldi and Little. At the moment, it's about 12%. Um, but it could be even more. The big difference, another big difference between Aldi and Little and their rivals, is that they are ignoring the internet no internet shopping, or very, very little internet shopping, just wine and booze for little, whereas all their rivals are ploughing hundreds of million pounds into the internet. So that's another very interesting thing to watch in this age where in the retail space we're all taught you have to go on the internet, you'll only survive on the internet. Aldi and Lidl, and particularly Aldi, are saying, no wait, we're going to do this all by bricks and mortars, all by the old-fashioned way, pulling people into nice stalls. Thanks, Richard. Richard Cockett, our Britain business editor, who can now get back to unpacking his shopping. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in this show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. And do please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.